Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The World Ahead. This future-gazing podcast series considers the big themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is out now. Have we reached peak China? What will happen with inflation? Can Europe cope without Russian gas? Over eight episodes, we're debating key questions from geopolitics to climate change to economics that will prepare you for 2023. This week, we're looking at the war in Ukraine. What happens on the battlefield and in Kiev and Moscow has far-reaching implications. Energy prices, inflation, interest rates, economic growth, food shortages all depend on how the conflict plays out in the coming months. Two of my colleagues watching this closely at The Economist are Robert Guest, our foreign editor, and Shashank Joshi, our defence editor. Hello, Robert and Shashank. Hello, Tom. Hello, Tom. Shashank, perhaps I could start with you. What's your assessment of the situation on the ground as we head into the winter? It's a fascinating moment because Ukraine has just liberated Kherson. This is the the first administrative regional capital Russia took in the first week of the conflict. And this is a major setback for Russia. So Ukraine has momentum. Its morale is sky high. And there's some interesting looking offensives going on now in the east of the country, in a part of the country called Luhansk. That's one half of Donbass that people will have heard of. And particularly battles going on around a town called Svatova, which is a key point on Russia's defensive line in Luhansk. So there is still the possibility of more Ukrainian breakthroughs. But against that, we have to factor in a number of other things. One of them, as you say, that winter is coming. The ground is getting muddier, boggier. Ukrainian armour will have to stick to the roads. That makes it more vulnerable to getting hit by artillery. Drones can't fly as easily. Soldiers, you know, have to spend more time just focusing on their own survival. And of course, as Russia has retreated from Kherson, its defensive front lines are narrowing. And so it can also focus its more limited resources on a smaller stretch of front. So I think there's a huge amount still to play for. The fighting will probably slow down over the winter season, but it absolutely won't stop. And I wouldn't rule out further Ukrainian offensives in the months ahead. Thank you for that view from the ground, as it were. Robert, could you give us the global view, the view from the moon, as we sometimes think of it? In Europe, obviously, we're watching this particularly closely because it's right next door. It's the biggest conflict in Europe since 1945, and we are directly affected by it. Elsewhere in the world, is this seen as a European conflict or is it seen as something with global ramifications? It definitely has global ramifications, the most obvious of which is that it has caused prices of food and fuel to rise. And these are very special commodities. I mean, if the price of iPhones or chocolate goes up, you can just do without them. But food and fuel you need every day. You need to eat. You need to get to work. And so not only do higher food and fuel prices make people worse off, they also make countries much more unstable. When people protest about things, when they come onto the streets in in the capital to complain about their governments, it's an incredibly common uh, thing for them to complain about is that they can't afford the bus fare to work or they can't afford bread anymore. Uh, And so this has spread ripples of instability uh, around the entire world. And people are watching it very closely for that reason. Uh, And also because stepping back a bit, it's seen as a test of whether autocracies, whether dictatorships function properly. 
And before the war started, a lot of people were saying, you know, since the global financial crisis of 2008, you know, Western style democracies had its day and authoritarian uh, regimes like China and Russia maybe offer a model for the future. Well, that question's still open, but the evidence that the Ukraine war has thrown up is very much that autocracy is a suboptimal form of government. Not only was the decision to go to war in the first place taken by one man alone in his bunker, refusing to listen to any any points of view or not even hearing information he didn't want to hear anymore. So there was no accountability, poor flow of information. And then the uh, actual conduct of the war has been completely botched by Russia. I mean, it's a much bigger power invading a much smaller neighbor, and it's had almost no success at all. I mean, it's staggering how badly it's performed. So people are seeing this both for the direct effects it's having on their lives and also as a test of political systems. Thank you, Robert. Now, before we get into our predictions, let's hear from two Ukrainians living through all of this. Valeria and Nastia have been friends for over a decade, but while Valeria chose to stay in Ukraine, Nastia decided to leave. My name is Valeria. I'm in Kyiv right now. Each Monday now, we have um, missile attacks. <laughs> It's a strange feeling when you live in the center of Europe and you don't have electricity, you don't have water, but we still have our homes, our freedom. <laughs> Ukrainians, they're very strong and united nowadays. We need to cancel all the culture and I don't want my child to listen to Russian music, to watch their movies and to speak Russian, I guess. Because it's, I understood how important to have this Ukrainian identity. And I don't understand why I need to flee the country because the crazy dictator decided to take our territories. But at the same time, I have a small kid and I have a fear that I'm stealing his better future from him. So... I'm lost <laughs> and I don't know what to do. All my friends, uh, they moved to Europe, a lot of my colleagues. My name is Nastya Ivanchva, I'm 29. My hometown is Kherson. Now I live in Warsaw. I don't have a children, I don't have a husband. Actually, I was all by myself. So it was like, you know, this feeling to save myself. A lot of my friends in Kherson, their daily routine is very strange because they are trying to stay at home all day. Because in the city is dangerous because they have to, uh, like bombs. So my grandma, she's staying at home. My aunt staying at home. My friends staying at home and they just wait. I believe that we, I can back home in summer 2023. I can't explain why I have this feeling, but, uh, Ukrainian people is a little bit crazy and we are a little bit dreamers. So I'm pretty pessimistic about the situation. I don't believe that the war will end next year. I believe in our victory. We support our military, our heroes. They're dying uh, every day here fighting for our freedom. But I understand that we need time for this. So, will Valeria have to flee Kiev? Will Nastia be able to return? Shashank, in the world ahead 2023, you lay out three scenarios for how things might go in the coming months. So let's consider them in turn. The first is that Russia starts to do better. So what might change? 
The principal answer to that, Tom, is lots of warm bodies thrown into the front line. You know, you look back at Soviet and Russian history, they have not won their wars by, you know, devious stratagems and cunning manoeuvres of the, you know, the weak. They've won them by throwing sheer mass at their enemies. And as we know, they are mobilising what the Kremlin says are 300,000 men. They already have, I think, somewhere near 100,000 of those mobilised and thrown into the front lines, which I can tell you some of the NATO officials I talk to are worried because these may not be very well equipped, they may not be very well trained, but the ability to just suddenly conjure up an army of 100,000 people and give them, in most cases, guns is a pretty worrying thing from the point of view of warning time for war. So the worry is that Russia will push this manpower to the front, it will be able to train some of it into offensive units by the spring, and that this will force Ukraine back onto the defensive, and that a number of other things may go wrong. For example, Western supplies of arms to give to Ukraine may begin to dwindle, whether that's because of material shortages, we're running deep into our own stocks here in Europe, for instance, or for political reasons. If, for instance, Republicans in the United States block further arms flows to the Ukrainians. And on top of that, we have Russia's intensive campaign to destroy Ukraine's electricity grid and energy infrastructure. So the worry is all of this could cumulatively turn the tide in the spring to the summer, eventually allowing Russia to dictate unfavourable peace terms to Kiev. Robert, we heard there about the possibility that Ukraine's backers in America and Europe might start to waver. How might that happen and what should we watch for? Well, so far, the support's been very solid. Um, because, I mean, very unusually for a geopolitical thing, most people see this in sort of fairly straightforward good and evil terms. It's, it's the most unambiguous, unprovoked invasion of a sovereign territory with intent to sort of, you know, take it over and, and steal their country that we've seen really since the Second World War. So most people see it quite clearly, but once you start sort of getting to long periods of Europeans struggling to pay their energy bills in the winter, for example, you may see support waver a little. Now, we're not really seeing signs of that yet, but places to watch are the government in Italy, in Europe. Uh, Giorgia Maloney, a former admirer of Mussolini, uh, is in charge. And so far, she's said the right things. But some people in her, her coalition are more or less pro-Putin, or at least not as opposed to him as they might be. So that's one possible area of weakness in Europe. In America, there's a possibility that Republicans in Congress could obstruct the flow of funds to the Ukrainians in the short term. But the real thing that people worry about is the possibility that Donald Trump might get re-elected. I don't think that's probable, but it's certainly not an absurd idea. It's perfectly possible. And if, and if that happens, then the Ukrainians would have to be very worried indeed. Well, Shashak, to be clear, this first scenario where Russia suddenly starts to do better is the one you think that's least likely, isn't it? I think that's right, Tom, because although they've got lots of manpower, what they haven't got is all the stuff you need to turn men into an army. So particularly leadership, you know, they've lost their best officers in the first months of this campaign. They've also got shortages of key equipment, uh, including the armoured vehicles you need to allow soldiers to ride around in. They're running well short of artillery ammunition already, we're seeing and having to scramble around from places like North Korea to find more of it. So yes, I think it is unlikely they can regenerate their offensive potential. But of course, that still could have an impact on the front lines in other ways. Well, let's move on to the second of your three scenarios, which is stalemate. So how might that come about? What would it look like? 
Well, you know, if we look at Ukraine's performance, they've in some ways been spectacular. They have battered through the Russian lines in Kharkiv in the northeast in September, as we all saw. They conquered this area, leaving the Russians fleeing. And then they liberated Kherson, forcing the Russians off the right bank, the, the, the western bank of the Dnipro, well, the Dnipro River, back onto the eastern side. And they've done those things with incredible success. But the pessimistic case says, actually, those were particular scenarios. In, in Kharkiv, you had very, very thinly manned Russian front lines, manned by some of the most demotivated conscripted units from Donbass, from the militia forces there. And in Kherson, you have this very idiosyncratic geography with a big river, a couple of bridges over it that the Ukrainians relentlessly destroyed with their pinpoint precision rocket missiles given to them by the Americans. As the front lines narrow, the possibility of Ukrainian offensives becomes harder. You know, the Ukrainians need a rest. They've suffered enormous casualties, perhaps about 100,000 killed and wounded, if you believe figures offered by Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And so the argument goes, Russia may not be able to go back on the offensive, but actually there may be some doubts over Ukraine's ability to do this as well, particularly when its energy infrastructure is being shattered day by day and it's facing huge economic problems domestically. So in this scenario, the war goes on. And I always remind people, Ukraine and Russia were at war for eight years prior to the breakout of this invasion. 2014 to 2022, there was constant artillery skirmishing fighting going on in Donbass. And so we shouldn't rule out a years-long conflict, certainly one that drags on beyond the end of 2023. And that would suit Vladimir Putin in a way, wouldn't it, Robert? Because if he can't win, then the best he can do now is not lose. And that would mean stringing things out as long as possible and hoping that you know the Chinese or Donald Trump or somebody comes to the rescue. Um, certainly, that's true. But I mean, one has to make a distinction here. Yes, as Shashank says, the two countries were at war for eight years, but the scale of the conflict was completely different. I mean, you know, I, I've been right up to the edge of the old front lines before the hot war broke out. And it was fairly occasional firing of artillery. It was disrupting the lives of people who were right up close to that border. But for the rest of the country, it was fine. What you've got now is completely different. I mean, the whole country is being bombarded. They're having their power knocked out. Their menfolk are being conscripted. Quite a lot of the women are fighting as well. They've got a huge refugee problem. You know, the economy has been... I mean, it's a completely different scale of hostilities. So even if you don't have actual peace getting to a level of hostilities that was more, you know, much smaller and more stable would be a good outcome. So for Vladimir Putin, winning in the way that he originally envisaged it, i.e. very quickly taking over Kiev, overthrowing the government and asserting uh, Russian control over a very large, you know, a medium-sized country next to him, that's not going to happen. However, he's still in charge of Russian television. He can still portray what he's doing in a sort of shifting way, almost entirely untruthful, but which many people in Russia believe. So if he is fought to a stalemate, he could then say to the Russian people that he has prevented NATO and America from invading Russia and conquering all the Russian lands and subjecting everyone to colonial subjugation. I mean, he can just make stuff up, right? And he can declare himself the heroic victor here. And a significant proportion of people will believe him because that's all that they will hear on television. So he can spin this in a way that sounds positive. However, you know, there are other sources of information and the more conscripts he throws into the meat grinder, the more families realize just how badly 
their sons were treated at the front line, how badly equipped, how badly led, how the officers ran away, how they weren't given even proper food, and how their army had almost no regard for their lives. That kind of information does trickle back and it does lead to discontent. I mean, it's one of the things that that helped bring down the Soviet Union was the realization of, of just how badly the Soviet army had done in Afghanistan. You know, this is a conflict that's entirely something that was thought of and created and decided on by one man. And maybe people will realize that. Well, thank you both. In a moment, we'll come back to look at the third and we think possibly the most likely outcome for the war in Ukraine. But first, a quick reminder, if you don't already have a subscription to The Economist, you're missing out. For unlimited access to our journalism, including our coverage of the conflict in Ukraine and its global implications, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. This is The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage and I'm talking to my colleagues Robert Guest, our foreign editor, and Shashak Joshi, our defence editor, on how the war in Ukraine is likely to unfold in 2023. Shashak, the third of your three scenarios is, you think, the most likely. So what is it? In short, Ukrainian breakthroughs, more Ukrainian advances. I've already explained the constraints on a Ukrainian advance. But of course, this Russian force, for reasons Robert has described, is ragged. It's demoralised. It's demotivated. It faces a winter of attrition and, and relentless attacks and terrible, austere, freezing conditions. I think there's a good chance the Ukrainians will say, let's go for a big punch, another big punch in the new year, perhaps in the spring, once we've built up a few new units, a dozen new brigades of forces. And that could come in many places. But I think the one they'll have their eye on is going to be a new offensive in roughly the middle of the front lines in Zaporizhia. I think most of our our listeners will know the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It's been discussed a great deal. That's roughly sort of think north of Crimea, so east of Kherson, but west of Donbass. And if they strike south, the aim could be to sever this Russian land bridge that connects Russian-held territory in the Donbass to the Crimean Peninsula, also illegally occupied by the Russians. And I think that we should really not rule this out. The Ukrainians have consistently surprised us. They've consistently surprised me. I, I didn't think they'd take Kherson so fast and so bloodlessly, to be entirely honest, without really urban warfare raging in the streets of Kherson. The Russians were squeezed out. So I do think that there's a good chance out of all the scenarios, sort of the most likely One is further Ukrainian gains, either in Luhansk in the east or in Zaporizhia in the middle of the country, once the Ukrainians have built up these forces. And once it becomes clear, I think, that the Russians perhaps can't create new offensive units from their ragtag mobilised forces. But of course, there are risks to that as well. And what I think is interesting about the US debate, the White House debate, the Pentagon debate on this, is that they're afraid of two things. They're afraid of stalemate. We heard Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, recently comparing this to the World War One and trench warfare. But actually, they're also afraid of the opposite. They're afraid of catastrophic Ukrainian success to the point where Russia is terrified, feels itself with its back to the wall and escalates, whether that's with nuclear threats or by other means. And so I think as that scenario unfolds, if it unfolds, Ukrainian advances, we are going to see much more anxiety and nervousness in the same Western capitals that have been enabling that very same Ukrainian offensive. 
Robert, in this scenario, Vladimir Putin would come under more pressure at home. Obviously, he controls the media. But how tight do we think his grip is when it comes to you know people trying to oust him? We asked our super forecasters for this edition of The World Ahead what they thought about this. And this is a crack group of forecasters based at Good Judgment in the US. And they gave it a 9% chance that he would be ousted before October. So not very large chance, but there's a lot more than zero. It's certainly a lot more than zero. Look, the difficulty with dictatorships is that they always look very strong right up until five minutes before they collapse. It is extremely hard for people to be openly against Vladimir Putin, but we do know that an awful lot of people, including right up at the top of the elite, think he's made a colossal blunder here, that he's unnecessarily inflicted not just monumental harm on Ukraine, but also on Russia itself, that he's made the country into a pariah, he's made the economy long-term much worse off than it would otherwise be because it's being isolated from all the sort of important tech advances of the rest of the world. There's a lot of discontent among the elite. The difficulty is if you move too soon as a member of the elite, then you lose your your freedom, possibly your life. I mean, a cautionary tale here. Think of Kim Il-sung. So back in 1950, he launched a completely unprovoked war on South Korea, the North Korean dictator at the time. At the end of that war, after three years and millions of lives lost, he had gained precisely no territory whatsoever. Like The borders were exactly where they were at the beginning of the war. And you'd think that would be a pretty good reason for the people to chuck this utterly useless, destructive man out. And yet, not only did he remain in charge for decades, but he handed the throne over to his son, who in turn handed it over to his grandson. So total military disaster followed by three generations of empower. It is possible. Unfortunately, dictatorships, almost by definition, do not deliver what the people want. They deliver what the dictator wants. That said, other people do lose after wars, so one can live in hope. Indeed. Okay, well, on that slightly gloomy note, I feel I know what to watch out for now. Thank you very much indeed, Robert and Shashank. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tom. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. You can read more about the outlook for the war in Ukraine and its global consequences, as well as other trends for the coming year, in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2023, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2023. Next week, we'll ask what's in store for the world economy. Do join us then. This episode was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer is Tom Pooley and the executive producer is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist.